0: 5. Revelation is a vision. A vision is a dream when you're awake. All kinds of symbolism, really hard to hunt down Uh, the meaning in Revelation. We're not going to get into the weeds this morning. We're just going to look at some of the big picture things going on in this chapter, starting in verse 1. Then I, uh, I as John, he's the author of this book, saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's the father. You can read chapter 4 to get a description of him. So John sees a vision of the Father sitting on the throne. In his right hand, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So legal documents during this time, uh, they would have been rolled up as a scroll, and they would have had seven wax seals holding the scroll together, and that preserved the integrity. So if this thing was transported by messenger, when you got the scroll that I sent, if all of the seals were still intact, then you knew nobody had tampered with the document. And the scroll in the wax seal would have been my signet ring or... My initials, something like that, that would have let you know that it came from me. And so that way it would just vouch for its authenticity. So there's this scroll with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The contents of the scroll you can see beginning in uh, chapter 6 chapter 6 through chapter 20. That's what's written on the scroll. It's God's plan for how he's going to work everything out in the end, how he's ultimately going to accomplish his will. Then one of the elders, the elders, there's 24 elders representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, apostles of Jesus, so that it represents the people of the Old and the New Covenant. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns, that stands for being all-powerful, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the world. That's uh, referring to the Holy Spirit. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Pretty straightforward what's going on here. Again, without getting into the weeds. John sees a vision of heaven. In heaven is the throne. The Father's on the throne and he has a scroll. And that scroll is... Uh, kind of in our terminology, it's it's a legal document. It's saying, this is what I'm going to do. Here is my will spelled out. Here's how I'm going to right every wrong. Here is how I'm going to deal with all of my enemies, sin, Satan, death. Here's how I'm going to deal with the wicked, those who are not in relationship with me. Here's how I'm going to vindicate the righteous, those who are in a relationship with me. And here's how I'm going to redeem this creation That I've made. That's what that's what's written on this scroll. Again, if you read through Revelation six to twenty, that's what it's about. It's about God redeeming all of creation, dealing with His enemies, dealing with those who have not been in relationship with Him, who are the wicked, and dealing with the righteous. So that's what's going on. The Lamb, who is Jesus, takes this scroll, and then beginning in chapter six, He opens it, and um, everything kind of follows from there. What I want to look at this morning is who this lamb is who is jesus as we see him in revelation chapter five there's a couple of things that jump out to me the first thing you see is that he's a lamb it says Well, i saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain down in verse nine you are worthy to take to, to take the scroll and open the seals why are you worthy because you were slain that idea of being slain ties back to exodus 12 uh, the jews are in slavery to egypt um, God is delivering them through Moses, the, the final plague, the tenth plague. Um, Jesus, uh, God says to Moses, you need to tell everybody they need to kill a lamb, it needs to be one years old, and then put the blood on the doorposts of your house because an angel of death is sweeping through tonight, and anyone who has blood on their door, this angel will pass over their house. That's why it's called the Passover meal, the blood of this lamb is a substitute for the blood of your firstborn. The firstborn in all the Egyptian households was, were killed that night, but the firstborn in the homes of the Jews were passed over. This, blood, this lamb was a substitute, a sacrifice for them. And that's what Jesus. That's who Jesus is in this picture. He was the lamb who was slain. He's worthy because he was slain. He's a sacrifice, a substitute for us. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. Any of y'all, Hunger Games, anybody? One, two, kids? Any of y'all Hunger Games people? We don't let our kids read them either. If you do, you're not a bad parent. So, uh, I've read them. So here's the thing. Hunger Games. There's this huge battle. It's a sport, spectacle, And there's two people from each of these 12 districts that are pulled into this. And they fight to the death in this arena all for the entertainment of the people in this city. And their names are chosen by lottery. They just pull a name out of the hat. If your name's called, then you've got to go fight. The main character in the story, her name is Katniss. Her sister, I think her name is Prim. Her name is pulled. Prim's name is pulled. And she's not going to last very long in this arena. And what her sister says immediately is, I'll go, sign me up. I'll take her place. That's a substitute. Prim should go. It was her name that was drawn out of the hat. Her sister Katniss says, I'll go in her place. And the story goes from there. That's a picture of substitution. That's what Jesus did for us. The Bible says the soul who sins, that person will die. What Jesus says is, I'll take that for you. I'll take the penalty of your sin. If the wages of sin is death, I'll take your penalty. You don't have to die for your sins because I will. We just sang that song, the wrath of God was on him. The wrath that is due us because of our sin, Jesus took. He substituted himself in our place. He's the lamb who was slain so that we don't have to be. We'll experience physical death unless Jesus comes back first. But we won't experience spiritual or eternal death. We won't pay the penalty for our sins that we deserve. Some of you are fair people. This is not fair. This is grace. Jesus substituting himself in our place. You see also it says about this lamb that with your blood you purchased men for God. That idea of purchasing men uh, in war during these times, the victorious army would take uh, soldiers captive, POWs, and bring them back to their city. And the expectation was the losing nation would then buy these slaves or buy these men out of slavery. They would buy these POWs back and bring them home. That's the picture for us of what Jesus did. He says in John 8 that uh, he who sins is a slave to sin. If you've been uh, in our church over the past 6 or 7 weeks during Lent, we've talked about setting our Hebrews 12:1, setting ourselves free from the things that hinder us and entangle us, the things that tend to master us. We can become slaves to those type of things, to selfishness, to fear, to doubt, to worry, to any form of sin. We can become a slave to those things, And what Jesus' death did, his blood, paid the price for us. It ransomed us out of captivity. You ever bounced a check? Are you kidding me? None of you have ever bounced a check? One person? Y'all are unbelievable. No, one person at 7 o'clock bounced a check too. Y'all are way better than me. You don't let your kids read the Hunger Games and you don't bounce checks. Unbelievable. So I bounced one and I bounced it to a church. How about that? I bounced my tithe check. So I thought that might be a double whammy. Not only was I, I didn't know if like I bounced it to the church and I bounced it to God. I didn't know how all of that worked out. The cross is a check written. I'm paying for your sin. I'm ransoming you out of captivity. Easter demonstrates that the check cleared. That's why the resurrection is so important. Without the resurrection, we've got nothing. It means Jesus just died as a martyr. He died for a good cause. The resurrection shows that he died as a savior. He died for us. He rose again. The check cleared. It was good. His blood was sufficient, not just to be a substitute for our sins, but also to buy our freedom. Don't, think, don't push the metaphor too far, did he pay the devil or did he pay the father? That's pushing it too far to try to figure that out. What we need to see is we're in slavery to sin, whatever that looks like. For some of us, it's addictive behaviors. For some of us, it's, again, it's worry or it's fear. For some of us, it's doubt. We, we've been set free from all of those things because of the blood of Jesus. And Easter demonstrates the check cleared. He's paid enough for you to be free. Verse 5, it says this John is weeping. He's saying, Who can open this scroll? Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. This is one of the elders, one of these angels talking. Genesis 49.10 says the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. There's this idea that Jews saw this as a prophecy or a prediction of the Messiah that he would come from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Isaiah 11 says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Again, that was something that the Jews saw as a prophecy or a prediction of the Messiah. Both Genesis and Isaiah, those are political verses. They're talking about a king. It's interesting, this elder, when John is saying, who can open this scroll from the heavenly or the angelic perspective? They see a lion. They see a king. When John looks, he sees a lamb who looks like he's been slain. The same person, Jesus, from heaven's perspective, he's a king. That's what they're looking for. Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning, waiting for God to fix everything that we've messed up with sin. They're looking for a king to come and make everything right. We're looking for a savior to come and make us right. We see different things in the same man depending on. On our perspective. What we do need to hear, though, is that our Savior is a king as well. Sometimes we can think, well, all he cares about is my personal relationship with him. I've been forgiven of my sins, and so I'm good. No. That's just step one in the process. Jesus is a king, and he's bringing a kingdom. That's what he talked about more than anything else the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. If you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially those three gospels, you see that there's nothing, no area of life that he doesn't touch. Finances. He says to the rich young ruler, go and sell everything. You can't serve God and money. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart is. He talks about money. Career. He says to Peter and to Andrew, drop your nets. Quit your job is what he's saying to them. And follow me. To Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, he says the same thing. Come follow me. Quit your job. Get out of that. Come follow me. Family. He says to James and to John, leave your father and come follow me. He says, anyone who loves father or mother or, son or brother or sister or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Enemies, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's what he, tell, he tells us. Work relationships, leader and follower, boss, employee, however you want to see that. First is last, last is first. Greatest is the one who serves. Civic life, he says, give to Caesar what Caesar's and to God. What's God? Religious life. He tells us how to pray, how to fast, how to give. In every area Jesus touches, he's a king, and his rule is universal. When we say yes to him, we're opening our whole life to him, not just the spiritual part, not just the moral part, not just the guilt, sin part, and saying, here, fix this, and not even just the areas that we struggle with, where we say, well, I want you to help me here because I struggle here. Come in and give me some direction here because I don't know what to do. He's a king, and he is uh, has authority in everything that's within his sphere of influence. And his sphere of influence is complete and total. And so this morning, one of the things to ask yourself, he's a substitute for you. Do you get that? He's ransomed you. Can you receive that? And he's a king in your life. Is there some area of your life where he's not the king? Is there some area of your life where you're bucking him? Most likely, it's not conscious you're not intentionally shaking your fist it's probably uh, maybe benign neglect might have been because you've never thought that Jesus has any say so in your career that's just business there's no such thing as just business he's a king everything in his kingdom he has say so over in some relationships maybe a long term relationship where you have just struggled and you're done you're tired you're going through the motions in that relationship you need to re-up with him as the king. What does it look like in this relationship to forgive, to extend grace, to extend mercy, those type of things. Finances, all of the future for some of you. It's the future. Do you realize he's got, as the king, he has a say-so. He has the say-so. And what tomorrow looks like for you, and next week, and next month, and next year. Are you willing to give him the plans and purposes that you have in order to receive the ones... That he has. It says here, you've made them, that is, you've made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. God has plans and purposes for each of us. Again, Jesus is a king. He's looking to make us priests, that is, mediators between uh, God and those who don't know him. This is 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. That's what it means to be a priest. He's given you and given me this ministry of reconciliation. God and, the people, God and the world are estranged from one another. And it's people who've estranged themselves. We've distanced ourselves from God. And what he's saying to us, your job, you're my ambassadors. Go tell them that I've made a way through Jesus for them to be reconciled to me. That's what it means to be a priest. And every one of you, man or woman, boy or girl, if you're following Jesus, you're a priest. And you're, you have a responsibility ultimately to reign on the earth. Your obedience is is the way Jesus exercises his influence in our community. Jesus exercises his influence through your obedience. As you follow him on a daily basis in your home, in your school, in your community, in your place of business, as you obey him, as you live out his values, he is exercising his reign, his influence through you. That's for all of us. This is so much bigger than... If you die tonight, will you go to heaven? Or if you die tonight, will you go to hell? That's important. That's step one. That's just step one. There's so much beyond that. He doesn't just save us from sin, death, and hell. He saves us in order to make us a kingdom of priests. I think the question for us this morning is that's who Jesus is. He's this lamb who was slain. He's a substitute for us. His blood set me free, set you free from whatever it is that holds you back. He's a king, and he has influence in every sphere of our life, in every sphere of our community. And so the question is, well, who is he to me? Is he all of those things to me? Your personal destiny hinges on your relationship with him. If you read through Revelation, there's a couple of passages that are honestly pretty scary, and they all deal with what's called the day of the Lord. It's not a literal 24-hour day, but it's the time when Jesus returns and he, it's the end of the end. It's when he's saying, this is it. He comes back for a final time, he takes care of all of his enemies, and he recreates everything that he has made. And at that point, it's, it's kind of too late. You read in the Bible about the sun turning dark, and the moon turning to blood, and stars falling out of the sky. All of that is saying there's this shaking going on, and the only thing that remains is what's unshakable. And people's response to that day is totally dependent. Upon their relationship to the Lamb, this is uh, Revelation six sixteen. They, those are these people who aren't in a relationship with Him. They're estranged from God. They call us to the mountain. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. That is of the Father and the Son. And who can stand? Then Revelation nineteen says this: Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and He has made his, bright, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Same day, completely different response based on connection to the Lamb. For those who aren't connected to Him. For those who have not said yes to Him. It's the worst day in the history of days. And for those who are, it's the best day. In the history of days. The same stuff happens on that day. And your reaction to it. Your response to it. Is totally dependent. On whether you're connected to the Lamb. Or not. And I would say. The same thing is true on Tuesday. Your response to what goes on on Tuesday. Is totally dependent. Upon whether you're connected. To the Lamb or not. He's the one that provides perspective, He provides encouragement, He provides direction, He provides comfort and peace and hope, He provides meaning to the life that we live. Tuesday is completely different if you're connected to the Lamb or not. And so is next Thursday, and so is 2015, and so is the Day of the Lord. All of those things. The circumstances are what they are. And in many cases, we're powerless to change those one way or the other. But we're connected to one who can. And we're connected to one who can provide meaning for those things. It all depends on your relationship with the Lamb. Luke 15 is a great chapter. Three stories, all communicating the same point. We've been estranged from God, and He is aggressive in His attempts to reconcile us to Him. Sometimes we have this picture that God is aloof, He's sitting in heaven waiting on us to come groveling back to Him. Luke 15 says no. He comes after us. He pursues us intentionally and consistently. If we're not found by Him, it's because we keep running away. It's not because He's not chasing us down. Three different looks, three different pictures here. One, the lost sheep. Matthew, I like it better, says the sheep wander away. The shepherd, Jesus, has a hundred. One of these sheep, have wandered away, and I think of us. Some of you have been doing this for a really long time. You've been Christian since you were 8 or 10 or 12 or 15 years old. You knew what I was going to say before I said it. You knew the songs we were going to sing. You know all of it, and you're bored. And sometimes when we're bored, we start to drift, and we look up at some point and realize we kind of lost sight of the shepherd. It's not that we're not Christians anymore. We're just, we can't really see him because we've drifted Away, we've wandered away. It wasn't intentional rebellion on our part. We just got bored. We got distracted by other things. That's another reason we wander. Sometimes we get distracted. I would say particularly a crisis can cause us to uh, become distracted. It gets it's front burner. It's what's right in front of our face. Is this massive issue that's requiring so much of us emotionally and spiritually and physically, maybe even relationally. We're putting everything we've got into putting out this fire or dealing with this crisis, and Jesus can kind of recede to the background. And then the crisis is handled one way or the other. It resolves, and we We realize, I can't even see him anymore. I've wandered away. Busyness can cause us to wander. Good stuff that we're doing that just causes us to drift from him. I wonder this morning if any of you would say, I'm a That's me. I'm a lost sheep. I've wandered. And what you need to hear is he comes after you. You don't have to find your way back home. All you have to do is say, I'm lost. And he will be there to rescue you. Second picture is this lost coin. There's this lady. She's got ten silver coins. She loses one. Sweeps her house until she finds it. Coins are inanimate. When I think of these lost coins, I think of people, they just don't know. Ignorant. They've never heard the God—I don't mean ignorant in a negative way. Just never heard the gospel, never had it explained to them. Don't know what they don't know. That maybe some of you this morning you'd say, "Yeah, I'm not really close to God, but I don't even know what you're talking. I don't know how to get from from me to Him. I don't even know what you're talking about. This is all new to me." And what you need to hear is God is pursuing you as well, and He'll communicate His heart for you and the truth of the gospel to you in a way that you'll understand this idea that you need a Savior. And He is it. He can communicate that to you if you'll ask. Luke 15 ends with the story of two sons. You've heard this story before. There's a younger son who's just a flat-out rebel. Asks his dad for his inheritance, takes it and goes and blows it. on Wild living, realizes he can't sustain himself. He's hungry, beat up, and so he comes home. And he's got his I'm sorry grovel speech. All of it is prepared to come back. His father sees him on the road, runs out to him, before the guy can even get into the speech, he cuts him off. I don't want to hear it. Here's a robe. Here's a ring. We're having a party. Because what was lost has been found. My son, who is dead, is home. He's alive. For some of you, if you were honest, that's you. You're just a flat-out rebel. That's who you are. You want to find out, every. you learn everything the hard way. It doesn't matter what your parents tell you. It doesn't matter what your friends tell you. You're going to figure it out on your own, and you live that way. And that's good in some cases, not so good in others. And if you were honest with yourself, you would say, That's me. I've tried to do this thing on my own. You might not have this list of heinous sins that you've committed, but you've lived your life apart from Him and said, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to figure this out on my own. At some point, life will whip you. And when it does, you need to know. You don't have to come all the way home. You just start walking, and he's there. The father met this rebellious son who had humiliated him in front of his entire town, made it just awful what he did to him in terms of reputation in this culture. The father meets him on the road, runs to him. Dads don't run in this culture. He runs to him and embraces him. And pulls him in. If that's you this morning, if you're a rebellious son or daughter, know that is his heart for you. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to prepare the speech. You don't have to give any re- you don't have to do any of that. You just need to say, I want to come home, and he'll pull you in. Some of you may relate more to the older brother in that story. On the outside, everything looks good. He's a rule follower, he's a good kid, he's always done the right thing. He's obeyed his dad to the letter. For the whole entirety of his life, but his heart is distant from his father. He sees himself as a servant, not as a son. In his mind, he's been working for his dad. Therefore, his dad owes him certain things. It's a business relationship. It's not father-son. It's master, slave, employer, employee. He sees it as a transactional type deal. And what he says to his father is, I can't believe you would do this. This kid. Our brother, he humiliated you, and now you're bringing him back in, throwing this huge party. You've never done a thing for me. I've slaved for you, that word. I've slaved for you my whole life. You've never even thrown a small party for me. Just like the father goes to the rebellious son on the road, he also goes to the older brother, the self-righteous one. He goes to him in the backyard and says, Please, come in this house. And that's what he says to you. Some of you have grown up in church. You've been in church your whole life, and you are a wonderful person outwardly. You've done it. Everything's put together. You read your Bible. You say your prayers. You go to church. You go to small. You do all of that stuff. And you're doing it all from the mentality of a servant. I'm going to do this, and then God's going to owe me. When I need him, I'm going to be able to cash in my chips because I've done all of this service all of these years. You're missing it. It's all grace. That's what the elder brother didn't get. It's grace. You don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. And everything the Father has is mine. Not because I deserve it, but because I'm his son. And everything the Father has is yours. Not because you've earned it, because you're his son and you're his daughter. That might be you this morning. You've got it all together on the outside, but inwardly you see yourself not as a son or a daughter But as a servant, you've earned your way in and you might even be frustrated with God because he's not holding up his end of the deal in your perspective. You've worked really hard for him to not come through and give you these things that you need slash want. You need to hear, I need to hear. He comes after us as well. The older brother needs a savior just as much as the younger brother does. We can look on the outside and say, that guy, his life's a mess. He absolutely needs Jesus. So does the person whose life is put together. They need Jesus just as much. Sometimes it's harder for them to recognize their need for a Savior, for someone to sup because they've never done anything that bad. But it's still rebellion. It's just an internal and not an external. All of those folks, wherever you find yourself, are you a wandering sheep? Are you a lost coin? Are you a rebellious younger brother? Are you a self-righteous older brother? We all need a Savior. We need someone who would be a substitute for us, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all enslaved to something and we need His blood to set us free so we can be this kingdom of priests who will rule and reign on the earth. And we all need a king, someone who's going to direct us and guide us, someone who can see around the corner and can lead us accordingly. Let's pray. This is how Revelation 5 ends. Then I look